Richard Ziade. You say my full name. Paul Ford, yes. Hi. Hi. Good to see you. Good, great to see you. We're back. Uh, this is Track Change, is the official podcast of Postlight, a product studio in New York City. Come to us with your needs for all your apps and websites and mobile and whatever, and we'll build the hell out of it for you. So build you something beautiful. Wait till you see what happens when you come and tell your problems to Rich. <laughs> it's pretty exciting. <laughs> so, Rich. Yes. We have a guest today. It's not just you and I talking nonsense. Thank the Lord. Yeah, somebody who actually knows something. <laughs> it's pretty great. Who's in the studio with us Julia today? Pimsler. Julia Pimsler. You know, the first three letters of her name sound familiar, like that Pim sound. What? Oh, boy. Do I know <laughs> Pim? What? We'll get to that. Okay. Okay, so there's like a that. product, right? We're going to talk about a product? Yes. Who is Julia Pimsler? Julia Pimsler is an entrepreneur. Okay. And an author. Okay. Wait, wait. What is what is she the author of? She's the author of Million Dollar Women. Julia, I'm going to let you give the two-sentence summary of Million Dollar Women. I can do better than that. The publishers gave me a great oh, one-sentence tagline. They trained you up. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. No, the tagline is, uh, or the subtitle, is The Essential Guide for Female Entrepreneurs Who Want to Go Big. Cool. And that's out on Simon & Schuster? Yes. your publisher? You love to say who the publisher is. It's such a writer thing for you. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. I'm going to say two more things about Julia, and then we're going to get into a conversation with her. You ready? She is the founder of the Million Dollar Women Academy to help more women get to $1 million in revenue, which is great. Yes. That's, That's a perfect number. And she is the daughter of the linguist Paul Pimsler, creator of the Pimsler Language Aptitude Battery and the Pimsler Method, which means that you were born a brand. <laughs> Something Welcome. like that. People pay a lot of money to get there, Julia. <laughs> he wasn't a brand when I was growing up. He was a simple academic, but okay. it, it all came later. <laughs> so, welcome. Thank you for being on Track Changes. It's great to be here. I'd love to set the backdrop okay. here okay. by you telling us you're in school. Let's just start at school. Uh, where, where you decided Preschool? to go. Which school? No. How far back let's, are we going? Let's go to college. Okay. Undergrad. And what are you thinking about in terms of where you're going to go and what you want to do? Or are you thinking about I shouldn't make that assumption, too. You well, may just be thinking Well, funny enough, about... I, after a long meandering road, I've come back to pretty much exactly what I was interested in in college, okay. which is I was a film studies major and a women's studies minor. Okay. So I was always very interested in media for social change. Okay. That was a big focus of mine. And also feminism. Surprise. Okay. And as topics... And did you know how that was going to translate into what you did on a day-to-day basis? Not at all. No, I fell in love with documentary filmmaking when I was in college. I made a documentary as my senior project. It was called Bula Bula, Yale Goes Co-Ed. I was at Yale at the time, and it was the 20th anniversary of co-education of women. And I got a little money from, I guess that was my first fundraising, come to think of it, got a little money from the administration and went and tracked down the first women who were ever admitted to Yale. Interesting. In their lives and their jobs and found these incredibly impressive women, had them tell their stories. What had they gone on to do? Really cool stuff. Um, You know, heads of divisions at large corporations, prominent journalists, lawyers, like really impressive women. But what jumped out at me, funny enough, is that almost all of them talked about these deep insecurities they had and like imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. And that was my first heads up at age you know, 20, whatever it was, that even women who are highly successful can suffer from these, like, insecurities and, and imposter syndrome. When did Yale go co-ed? 1969. 
Oh, okay. Okay. So this That's is... That's incredible. They were one of the latest, one of the That's last incre- ones to go co I cannot co-ed. believe yeah. it's that And you late. know, what was funny is when I went and dug up all this film footage, like I, I looked at these films called like To Be a Man, where like Yale made these documentaries to try to convince everyone not to go co-ed. They really didn't want to go co-ed. But they finally had to because all the best male students were going to other colleges where they could get dates more easily. Mm-hmm. So they really let in the women so that they could get the best men. And have dates for them. Yeah, it's kind of eye-opening. If you drop this on the timeline, I mean, this is post-civil rights. It was right in the thick of everything. Like the Black Panthers were on trial in New Haven. The Kent shootings had just happened. It was a fascinating time. It's almost like sexism is an incredibly long-standing problem in our society. (laughs) It's almost that way, but not 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 in our industry. Not in technology. If you would have told me predict, if you if someone told you predict the year, what year would you have said? Yale going color. I would have actually, because I knew a little bit about it, said 60s. I would have thought like 62. But my actual initial, like, oh, I bet that was like in the 30s. That's more That's where I would have been. That's what it should have been, right? Yeah. But But no matter, it gave me a great topic for my senior thesis and uh, (laughs) got to make this documentary. And then I actually created a fund at Yale to fund future women filmmakers. Oh, cool. So therein lie the roots, I guess, of a lot of things that I've done professionally. I was very interested in making films that made people think about social issues and also reinvesting capital so that it could go to work for people who didn't have access. Got it. So you, you grew up in an academic household. I did. Okay. Was uh, your father taught? Yes. He, he was a teacher of romance languages, and he invented this method for teaching foreign languages called the Pimsleur method. And your mom also an academic? She or? also taught um, critical thinking, kind of like a writing class. Mm-hmm. So they were academic wonks. They were not business people at all. It's funny. I know a lot of people think, oh, you must have grown up in the business. Mm-hmm. But in fact, I'm really the first entrepreneur in my family, unless you count my great-grandmother Ada, who I referred to in Million Dollar Women, who ran a cigarette and candy shop on Lower Broadway mm-hmm. at the turn of the century. Wow. And you grew up in the city. I did, right here in New York. This is the, this is the real story here, Rich. Yeah. This is like... this is Every like time a... we have... I mean, what, it's fine. I, my own insecurity. I'm, I, you talk about impo- imposter syndrome. Here we go. Rich grew up in Bay Ridge. So he's, he's a little bit She like... doesn't know where Bay Ridge is. Do you know where Bay Ridge is, <laughs> It's Julia? on the NR. Oh, ouch. <laughs> she threw out the train <laughs> line. Great Manhattan oh, burn. Man. That's, that's an it's old the, world It is on burn. the NR. Yeah. Strong, strong. Um, I'm going to okay. go easy on you guys because you're men and, you know, I want to do some affirmative action here. <laughs> no, and our, our, our delicate little feelings. <laughs> exactly. Let, let's keep going on the time. So this, you start this fund, you make this movie, and... Do you eventually decide, okay, I'm going to go into my own commercial and you know, Yes, endeavors. eventually. I did graduate from college with a whole lot of student debt. Mm-hmm. I kind of thought, all right, where am I going to go be poor? What are my choices? Oh, right? the downside of academic parents. Oh, totally, yeah. yeah the, the business had not taken off yet at all. In fact, really, Pimsleur did not become a big, successful business until maybe 15, 20 years ago when Simon & Schuster took it over. And we, oh. should, t- we should actually hit pause. Tell, uh, tell our listeners what the Pimsleur oh, method sure. is. Oh, sure. Yeah, so my father was the first one to disrupt the notion that to learn a foreign language, you had to go sit in a classroom for weeks and months and be bored out of your gourd and study grammar, right. and that was the only way to do it. So he invented a method where you could get up and running in a second language in like four weeks. Right. So you're going on a trip, or this was widely used by the Peace Corps. We actually went to Africa when I was a kid so that the Peace Corps could learn Twi, which is mm-hmm. the language of Ghana. And uh, this was revolutionary at the time. You know, now there's many, many businesses that do this, right? right. But Pimsler was the first. They just had their 50th anniversary as a method mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years ago. Okay, so I, you wanna, you're on your way to 
to Spain for your junior year abroad, this is the thing to do. Absolutely. Or a business trip or anybody going to a foreign country who wants to kind of get conversational quickly. Gotcha. So you grew up in that. It hadn't taken off at that moment. Academic parents, you've got a lot of student loan debt. Exactly. Right. We're at at my graduation. Friends going off to work in banks and consulting firms and whatnot. But I was determined to be a filmmaker. So that narrowed it down to like New York, L.A. And then I had Paris as a possibility because I grew up bilingual in French and English. Got it. And my dad being, you know, Paul Pimsler, Mm -hmm. his kids were going to speak a second language, big Francophiles. And I was so lucky to grow up bilingual in French. That was just the best thing my parents ever did for me. And so I decided to try out Paris. I thought, now that's a romantic place to be poor. Sure. And it turned out I was right. It's a great <laughs> place to be poor. You can, you know, sit in a cafe all day for what was five francs. Now it's probably 10 euros. <laughs> um, but wound up going to film school, uh, stumbled on the French National Film School, which is a government-sponsored film school. You know, if you're in America, you want to go to film school, we're talking about another eighty dollars to $100,000 a year, plus financing your films. Sure. private education. Yeah. In, in France, it was free. It was blew my mind. Even for non-citizens? Um, there, you had to go in through a different door, but yes, wow. very competitive process to get in, like a got six it. month exam to get in. So mm-hmm. I figured if I get in, I'll stay. If I don't, I'll go home. And I got in and stayed another several years. I was in France seven years in total after I graduated college. It's nice, a little state funded arts. It's a good thing for here, everybody. Here, in you know, France, Europe, Canada, they got it figured out. <laughs> <laughs> so you, at this point now, you, you've, you've got Paris under your belt. You've been in school for seven years, really? Yeah, I got an MFA, MFA in film production. And then what happens? So then I got hired by these two guys to work in their production company. And I loved this job. It was these two like really alternative guys who ran a documentary film company. I was like sending, you know, 16 millimeter film to Haiti to like film riots and stuff. I was totally into it. I'm still in Paris. Okay. And what what year are we in here now? It was like, I don't know, 90, mid 90s or so. Okay. So I'm working this job. I'm there for several months, and I'm having a blast. And then one day, about nine or ten months in, they take me out for coffee, and they're like, so we think you should run your own company. And I was like, no, no, I like running your company. I'm, I'm having a blast here. This is great. And they're like, no, we act, you need to run your own company. And they basically fired me. Sort of a sweet way to, to get you out the door, though. Well, I mean, you, you know, know, we sometimes say you need to release someone's talent back into the universe, right? This was one of these, like, the talent got released so this back is genuine. into the universe. This this was, just, oh, no, I got totally fired. They fired my ass. It How was did that feel? Really the, distressing. Uh, yeah, it, it was very distressing. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. I was like, you know, straight-A student. Like, I never failed at anything. I was devastated. But best thing that ever happened to me, because right around that time, my best friend from film school who was also American, we were like the two Americans at this French film school, moved back to the U.S. and had a documentary she wanted produced. And she asked me if I would come back and raise money to produce her documentary and do it with her. So went back to the U.S., uh, lived on friends' couches in New York, called up my best friend from college and said, hey, how about we start a film production company together? And shockingly, she said yes. So the two of us started Big Mouth Productions, which was all loudmouth women, and uh, we made five films over the next five years. So you were, you were focusing on a particular theme. Yes, social issue documentaries. That's what I was most interested in. I had made a film while I was in film school in France about um, FGM, female genital mutilation. So mm-hmm. it was like a huge human rights crisis where it's happening yep. to tons of girls in France. And that went on to win the French Human Rights Award and got international distribution. And so I'd gotten a little taste of like, oh, this movie making thing, this can actually make a difference. Be impactful, yeah. Yeah. So came back, but my job was to raise the money. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, 
build in a through line here for our podcast. Mm -hmm. So uh, I had to raise, you know, really hundreds of thousands of dollars to make these documentaries. And, you know, if you think fundraising for nonprofits is hard, like try fundraising for films, right? That's just like drawing money from stone. (laughs) That was sort of back in the moment too where it was was the D word. Like it was documentaries were sort of the great sort of cultural weird zone where nobody could get them funded. And I'm assuming getting like strong feminist documentaries funded was even more difficult. Yeah. Well, these were they didn't tend to be uh, women's issues. We did social justice issues, Mm -hmm. but still really hard to get funded. So it was like criminal justice issues, health issues. And there's no obvious distribution like there is now with Netflix and all that. stuff. Was that even an aim? I mean, were you thinking I want to get these funded so I can raise awareness about particular issues? Are you thinking I want to get these funded to possibly land distribution and make money? It was much more the social mission. It right. was like, how do we leverage film to help move the needle on some of these issues? Right. So we did like African-Americans in the criminal justice system. We followed a young public defender and his work mm-hmm. with kids. It was right around the time that statistic came out that one in three African-American men is under criminal justice supervision, mm-hmm. right? Either mm-hmm. in prison or just coming out of prison or yep. on parole. So we wanted to get under that statistic and you know follow real people. They were kind of cinema verite in style. Mm-hmm. We had a blast. So I, I love that, Rich, you, you thought you were bringing a capitalist into this podcast. And well, bring, the story's not finished okay. yet. Okay. <laughs> but right now, I'm just hearing... <laughs> we'll get there. I'm just hearing strong activism. We'll get to the profits in a minute. All right, all um, right. But you're, you, effectively, once you're funded, you win. Where well, you, it's funny where you should you say that. No, no, here's the funny thing about documentaries is that the business model there was just so broken. Right? Yeah. The business model was you go into debt for two years, working your tail off, right? Yeah. And then you sell the film and you get back to zero, you right. basically got back to yeah. zero each right. time, right? And right. then start all over again. But you're hoping the thing gets out there and raises awareness. Absolutely. And no, and we got some great distribution. You know, we were at Sundance and we had films on HBO and Cinemax Real Life. Huge. We went to the Berlin Film right. Festival. It was a really and, exciting life. But the part I will share, because, you know, I, it's really important, I think, for professional women to tell their stories, is that I woke up at age 33, you know, having been to Sundance and Berlin and all these films and, like, really exciting professional life. But I was like, you know, I really want to have a family. That's really important to me. And I mm-hmm. looked at the women kind of 10 years ahead of where I was in the documentary filmmaking world. Didn't see a lot of moms. Didn't see a lot of intact marriages. And I made this really big decision. Are you married decision. at that point? I was not. No. Okay. I was single. And decided to kind of get off the hamster wheel. I was like, you know wow. what? I got to try something different. This is not leading me to the full life that I want with all the things I want. Interesting. Um, Interesting. And the business model part was bugging me too. The right. fact that it's you kind know, of busted. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of busted. Exactly. So you took a break. So got off that train and went on to career number two. Career number one was filmmaking. Career number two was nonprofit fundraising. So I kind of left the film company knowing how to do everything from fix the photocopier to get a $500,000 grant from the Ford Foundation mm-hmm. and realized, I think the thing people are going to pay me for is getting the $500,000 grant from Got the Ford it. Foundation. So went out and became a fundraiser. I raised about $20 million for a variety of social justice nonprofits. That's amazing. That wow. was really fun. I was great. I, wow. I, I'm one of these weird people who loves fundraising. That's a fantastic. <laughs> that's so many that's the lunches. Quote of the podcast, right? That's an unbelievable number of lunches. I can't even imagine. What <laughs> I can't imagine. Like. You're complimenting shoes you don't like a lot. <laughs> you I know, mean. it's all storytelling. That's the thing. Documentary filmmaking was a great training ground for fundraising, that's actually. Fascinating. Because, right, you, I mean, you were in film. You know how it is. It's like you talk about this film, and really, what do you have? You got three pieces of paper. You got oh, three I, pieces of paper that describe this film, right? I wasn't in film. That's for grown-ups. I'm a writer. <laughs> you said just, media, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, I, got, I got the wrong aspect of media. It's um, similar motivations in some way. I was at Harper's Magazine for a long time, and it's not-for-profit, and I was just like, 
this is never going to work. And it's terrible. You're in almost a religion. <laughs> you know, there's people around you going like, I'm just going to stay on this path. And I there's think greater day, meaning I'm to gonna, this. Yeah. When you get those, like you get those sort of tokens, like from, you know, you get the little con palms that go around uh, the title of your film or whatever. And, and, and suddenly you're like, well, I got to get, got to get another one of those. And then you're like, wait a minute, I won't get to be a dad if I keep them. Right. You got to know what yeah. your priorities are. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and if that hadn't been a priority to have a family, maybe you would still be making documentaries today. Right. And certainly people did stay in that world and, you know, have families. I'm not saying that's impossible, but they were traveling a lot. You know, I really wanted to be there for yeah. my kids in their young life. And so coincidentally or not, met my husband, got married within like a year of leaving the film world. It does seem that that <laughs> sequence often occurs that way. You yeah. know, had yeah. a little more free time than usual. And um, within a year, you know, we had our first son. And, and then that's when career number three kicked in. So... Number one was the filmmaking. Number two was the nonprofit fundraising. While I was on maternity leave. Plus family. Plus family, right. There was a couple things going on there. Um, I had the idea for a language teaching program for young children. Okay. Because I wanted my son to learn French. You know, having grown up bilingual in French and English, it Uh was just a given to me that I was going to teach my son French. But I was at work all day in the nonprofit job. So he was at home watching, you know, Baby Einstein. And I thought, well, wait a minute. Couldn't he be using that time to learn French? Why is he watching this stuff that's just sure. eye candy, basically? Mm-hmm. So for about three months, I went around saying, you know, someone really needs to make a program for kids to learn a second language. Somebody who cares about media, somebody who cares about language, someone who's really into kids. And, you know, <laughs> it took about three months to realize, yeah, that, that's me. <laughs> well, it's also you needed to know that you need to test that. I, I've been in similar situations where you're like, somebody needs to do blah, blah, blah. And you're just like. It's the way you psych yourself up. Too. It's true. Just having those conversations, right? And seeing how people respond. Like, oh, yeah, that's actually a good idea. Well, and then you, you perceive suddenly there's this vacuum and now you can start to take risk around it, right? Like you yes. Can, Although yeah. how much risk is the question? And that was a big question for me because my husband was not on Wall Street. He was in the nonprofit world. I had a good paying job in the fundraising world, which I actually liked. Great colleagues doing meaningful work. Mm-hmm. So the idea of starting a company, having all that risk, I had just gotten out of the other company, right? The, the big mouth productions film producing company. How long, wait, and actually, how long was that? So now we're like two years, three years? Maybe into three years in. Okay. Yeah, about three years of not being an entrepreneur. So that's actually a tr- not a tremendously long time. You're actually kind of getting the hang of this career. And right. Like you're, you got the rhythm, you got your kids, you're all, and then you're like, let's blow this up. Then I got the calling, right? I, I really do believe with entrepreneurs, it has to be a calling or like, don't bother. Yeah, no, you have to, everyone around you, oh, is going yeah. to, you have to kind of let everyone around you know that you and probably they will be kind of miserable if, oh, if you can't. Shine. At least comes, give this a try. The shine yes. comes off the idea within 60 days, and then it's the work. Yeah. And then you're working. Then it's just relentless, just, brutal work. Yeah. <laughs> and the problems and the challenges and the edge cases. and Well, all what was stuff. fun for me is that it started out very creative in the sense that, you know, I had been a filmmaker, a creative person. And so a lot of what I spent the early days on was just what would the film look like? Because I really conceived of it as like a 210 minute movie. Mm-hmm. that I would film and then dub into multiple languages and cut up into videos to teach kids ah, a second language. So that's okay. really what Little Pim is. It's a 210-minute movie shot in high def, beautiful production quality, and then we have it dubbed into 12 different languages. Uh, and then you break it up into the segments that represent different that's topics. Right. And, and even though at the time NTSC videos were still around, I knew you know that was over, but I also knew that DVDs were going to be short-lived. So I also filmed everything in five-minute episodes with the idea that streaming at one wow. point would take over. And funny enough, we're converting to a streaming format right now. So, so like it's so, subscription-based or something like yes. that? Got it. So Rich, 
describe what it's like when your your son looks at Little Pim. He just freezes. Okay, so is it? I, I just turn to Anthony. It's online. Just, for wait, is it online video? What is it? We bought the DVDs. Okay, and then so these are DVDs. I, oh no, actually. We bought some DVDs, but then we realized that... You, you can get them have, as a digital download. We got a yeah. digital download, because uh, our DVD player doesn't exist anymore, pretty much. So we got them as digital downloads. And what language you know, is he doing? French, mostly. Awesome. Genial. And Arabic. And Arabic. Why Arabic? I'm le- we're Lebanese. So cool. And we're just trying to be somewhat mindful mm-hmm. of our... You know, Arabic's not strong in the house. It's French and English. My wife speaks fluent French, but... But even just a little exposure will help him later exactly. on with accent and recognizing exactly. the words. So when we visit Lebanon, he can actually have a conversation. He's three and, and a half, and he can I have love a conversation. It. It's great, yeah. So this is... The the product is... for what? What's the age for the kids? Zero to six. Okay, so yeah. zero to six, short segments, helping them with basic language learning. That's right. In languages, they're trying. What are, are there? What are the big languages? The idea is instead of having them watch whatever else they'd be watching on a screen, to watch Little Pim, and that way they're learning a foreign language at the same time. So it's kind of a win-win, right? Because yeah. as a parent, you know, I'm a mom. I felt guilty when my kids were watching yep. the screen, but mm-hmm. this way they're actually learning something, and they don't know the difference because Little Pim is really fun and entertaining. Yep. And we didn't make it clear actually. Little Pim is a character as well. Oh, it's the name of the series. Panda. He's a little, yeah, he's a little panda bear, yeah. and he has all kinds of adventures. I, I based him on kind of a combination of like Curious George, Elmo, and like yep. the Cheshire Cat. <laughs> I, if I can, I'll, I'll share a, a just sort of bystander observation. The pace of it, my little girl at 18 months would just watch. And it, I think even like Baby Einstein, if you watch a minute or two of Baby Einstein, there are about 20 cuts, 15 cuts. They constantly cut to different animations and scenes and this and that the pace of little pim is a lot more stretched out and for like an 18 month old i think they they can sort of take it in and and process it so she's been you know from a very very young age it just sort of captivates her because it's not a bunch of stimuli coming at her it's sort of these i don't know 30 second or one minute segments that sort of cover a single thing like putting on a jacket and it just sort of slowly reveals itself and she can t- process it. And I actually, there's a TED Talk, I forgot who gave it, this uh, psychologist, about how bad Baby Einstein is. Because it actually has so many cuts that today, you know, with one-minute videos and 30-second videos, kids don't have the patience to sit through anything. Yeah, no, we intentionally paced it, you know, at, at the right speed for yeah. that age and especially because they're integrating the vocabulary they're actually learning things right, right? so we're bringing back you know une cuillere which means a spoon in french yeah. right they'll learn it at 10 seconds they'll learn it again at a second at a minute and a half we that's bring right. it back strategically that's the right. method is called the entertainment immersion method that's our trademark method at little mm-hmm. pim got it and so we lead with entertainment because you know you've got toddlers like if they're not entertained they're gone mm-hmm. right yeah. you can't make a toddler no. do anything yeah. so yeah. the number one thing was like this better be fun yeah so it's really fun but then in the meanwhile they're hearing nothing but the target language it's total immersion that's the immersion part of entertainment right. immersion and yeah, they learn no, these 500 words and phrases can there's we, no translation or anything like it's just the word yeah. in that language which wouldn't work for adults by the way it only works for kids we have subtitles that are optional but they're only for adults the kids do not need it they just watch and they figure Take it, it out yep. yep and right now 20 or 30 seconds of little pim learn how to say <laughs> banana <laughs> <laughs> Je mange une banane. Une banane.
Une banane. All right, good. Um, I do have a lot of adults who say, can I use it? And I'm always right. like, sure, but you'll only be able to talk to kids who are four years old. Because <laughs> that's the vocabulary right. that we're teaching. Spoon. <laughs> exactly. Ball. Okay, so you start this business. Um, now you've got the creative, you've had the idea. Right. You've got a really clear creative vision of I'm storyboarding while my kid's sleeping, you know. Are you, and are, you're still out there raising funds. I'm still in my full-time job. Oh, and so not too not- keen on the idea of leaving it. Right. Okay. So this is overlapping. This is major got overlapping. It, yeah. It, so about a year it. and a half of overlap. What was the effect on your life of doing professional, mom, entrepreneur, three separate things that you're doing at once? What was well, that I like? wrote about this in Million Dollar Women that even when I was in it, and it was insane. I mean, it was pre, for me, pre-iPhone. I, was, I remember I was on a BlackBerry and I kind of looked at my BlackBerry as like, this is where I run my business. So like before work and at lunch and after work, I'd be on the BlackBerry texting with my one employee. I hired one employee mm-hmm. from early on, like one day a week, a young woman I found on Craigslist. So self-funding, effectively. Self-funding, yeah. Just how do I spend as little as possible but get this thing up and running and get proof of concept mainly for myself, frankly, mm-hmm. right? Like, it seemed like yeah. a good idea, but let's make sure people are really going to buy this. Let's validate it. Right? Absolutely. Okay. So um, ran the business off the BlackBerry and was up at all crazy hours and knew it was not sustainable, but also knew that if I got to a place where I had that you know, comfort level that it could go somewhere, then I would leave the full-time job. Okay, leave the job. Let's jump to that. Okay. Do you, do you decide, okay, this is the real deal. I want to go forward with this. Well, most big decisions in my life involve a spreadsheet. So this was no different. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Including marriage? <laughs> you know, don't, don't go there. You I want to see, <laughs> see that spreadsheet. <laughs> Within the marriage, there were spreadsheets. Who does what? Is this equally divided? <laughs> oh. I once met a couple who had a 20-page contract. Oh, wow. Who would clean the bathroom floor? No, you didn't. Oh, no. my God. Hilarious. No, That's oh, boy. pretty good. That's now, like yeah. in humor. Well, one, no, no, one, no. no one they they were gay, and they, didn't, they couldn't get married at that point. And they, uh, they were like, we need something to bind us. Okay. And they created this very serious contract. I asked to see it, and they were like, it's, no. Oh, my God. That is funny. But, you know, and, and my friend was just like, look. I don't think my wife has cooked a dinner in two years, but I also haven't cleaned the bathroom floor in two years. So it works. Right. They've each got a column. Those would be columns on my spreadsheet. (laughs) Yeah. So the spreadsheet at the time was how little money uh, or how much money do I have to give up in order to start this company? So I knew what I was making as a nonprofit fundraiser, which was like a good salary. And it was Mm -hmm. great hours, 10 to 6. I had negotiated this terrific package. And it's kind of a fun life. I mean, it's, I, it was for me. If you like fundraising, right? Yeah. It's a fun life. You're yeah. meeting really interesting people, doing work yeah. that matters, feeling like you're making a difference in the world. Like I had no real reason to get out of that. So you're not right. leaving some job where you're like, I just am so unhappy. Like, no. you've, you've already made this objective decision where you're like, I'm going to do something that's financially responsible, but I'm going to enjoy it. And you get to kind of like go out to great lunches and meet, meet smart, rich people. So it's pretty good. And like move money in the right direction. Right. right? I mean, right, that right. felt pretty good. You know? Let's yeah. take rich people's money and give it to social justice causes that I believe in. There are worse gigs. I can do that at it for, over like a really pleasant lunch. That's a great job. I think it is. It yeah. was just a great getting, job. I mean, just talking to you and kind but of. But that's why I was saying it has to be a calling, right? So the yeah. calling came, and the calling was this program for kids needs to exist, and you're the one who has to do it. And then after that, it's like, what are you going to do? You have so to once you saw the gap, there was like no going back. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And then also being the daughter of Paul Pimsler, because the other piece of the story is that, um, unfortunately, my father died very suddenly and tragically at a very young age. Mm -hmm. He died at 48. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, really, really young. So before this ever became a successful business, he basically created this revolutionary method for teaching a foreign language. 
but never lived to see it become a successful business. Gotcha. So I think there was a part of me that was like, I want to honor the Pimsler legacy. Like, I'm a Pimsler, you know? I, it, sure. I got to do something with this. Yep. And I was always so proud of what he created, and I meet people at parties. Oh, my God, Pimsler, I've done like six of those languages, and it's amazing. And so I, I felt like there was something there that I needed to do. Got so this it. is a way to sort of connect back to that. This is sort of this is coming way full circle. Well, yes, okay. back to back to my childhood. That's but right. also along the way, we've got filmmaking, we've got empowerment. There's a lot of narratives that are coming together at once. So decided I would, you know, answer the calling and uh, created the company. And within about a year and a half, got to a place where we had sold enough Little Pim that I felt like, okay, there's a viable business. So you now. haven't raised any money yet for Little Pim. Not real money. We put in some money ourselves, and we raised a little bit of friends and family. Okay, nothing crazy. How did you get okay. to the first sale? The first sale um, threw up a website. You know, at the time it was like we made it in India. It cost you know three thousand dollars. Then we had to scrap the whole thing because it didn't work. Start over, but you know we didn't spend a lot in mm -hmm. the early days. It was like minimum, minimum viable product. And people Got could it. buy online, or how did that work? Yes, they bought okay. online, and then we had a warehouse, and it was shipped directly from the warehouse. So you had a physical product in in, in the form of a DVD. We had three languages. We mm -hmm. had French, Spanish, and Chinese. Discs one through three. So when I say it's a 210-minute movie, at the time, it was you know still just half of that. We hadn't done volume two yet, just Got volume it. one. Company in India, get to your website. It's okay. People come. Somebody puts in their credit card. There was one first customer, and they said, sure, send me that. That's how, a good start. And how was the response? Great. I mean, parents were so excited that there was a way for them to be their kid's first language tutor. Because where this does all circle back to my social justice leanings is that I really wanted to democratize foreign language learning for kids. Because if you look at the history of language learning for kids, the 1% has always taught their kids a second language. You look at any private school, and those kids are learning sure. Spanish, Chinese, French, now maybe Arabic, as of like age five. Right. But in the public school system, kids are starting in eighth grade, which is basically the worst time. It doesn't work. Right? It doesn't work. It's well, neurologically, it doesn't work. The research has shown that the yeah. best time to learn a language is up to the age of six, maybe up to the age of 10. After that, you're toast. Yeah. It's really, really hard. Really hard. And also at that age, like, you don't want to be embarrassed in front of your classmates, you know, trying to speak a foreign language. It's, yeah. it's really silly. So I thought, well, let's create a way for every parent to give their kid this incredible advantage. You know, instead of showing your kids baby Einstein, mm -hmm. they could be learning Spanish. Okay, so Little Pim is out in the world. At what point did you decide to write a book? So when Little Pim first came out, I spent about the first three years, once I did quit my job and go full-time, I ran it basically like a lifestyle business for about mm -hmm. the first three years. And, you know, we had growth 30% a year maybe. You know, things were going mm -hmm. well, but it wasn't like the hockey stick, you know, off-the-charts growth that mm -hmm. I wanted. Because I always knew I wanted this to be like a million-dollar-plus international business. Mm -hmm. And so at a certain point, I had to totally change how I worked and also needed a lot more capital. And this is kind of the inflection point that led me to ultimately write Million Dollar Women because I found that when I started the business, there were a lot of resources out there. You know, you can go to the Small Business Administration, you know, people yeah. mentor you. Like if you're starting a business, there's a lot of help, right? But then you wake up like a year and a half into your business and you're like, oh my God, now I have this business, right? Mm -hmm. And how do I get to the next level? And there aren't as many resources at that phase. Sure. So I was lucky enough to find uh, the Entrepreneurs Organization had a program called Accelerator, which is to accelerate you to a million in revenues. You mm -hmm. have to have a million in revenues to join 
EO. So they created a program to help you get there. I joined that, and that was tremendously helpful. So what is that? Is it classes? Like, yeah, what is it's, the program? Um, it's like four learning days, and then oh, it's okay. being part of a community of entrepreneurs who Got are it. also scaling up their businesses. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was a game changer because, you know, I didn't even know what I didn't know mm-hmm. as, a, as a business person. I wasn't trained in business. I didn't have a finance background. There were just a lot of gaps for me and a lot of self-doubt and insecurity and, you know, can I really do this? Can I pull it off? You never thought... Okay, we got something here. Let me go get a professional CEO. You never thought that. You never thought, okay, I created the thing. I'm the creative spirit behind this. Let me go get a business person to run it. Well, why did why didn't I, you No, I did doubt myself as the CEO, but I always knew that I had the passion and dedication and background yeah. to really blow this out of the water. That yeah. no one was gonna give it the love that I was gonna give it. Okay. I, I, see, I'm surprised that you wanted to do the operational sort of spreadsheet part of it. Yeah, I like Why? that part, funny enough. I, I mean, we're, we're I, actually I like finding part. out that like she has planned her life. That like This is everything coming together. We're back to the spreadsheet. <laughs> no, and also I find business incredibly creative. I mean, really, what is more creative than business? You know, right. you're, you're taking nothing and weaving it into an yeah. entire universe. Right. And I love the working with the teams. I've had incredible people work with me at Little mm-hmm. Pim. I've been so lucky to have really amazing people. And, you know, I just knew that I needed, I needed help. Okay. And that's when I went out and found coaches and mentors and this entrepreneurs organization. And through that process realized, okay, I need some serious capital to do this right. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to, you know, transition everything to digital and go international and rebrand and do all the things we wanted to sure. do, that's going to be money. Yeah. Right. So I went out and raised um, venture capital, and that was hands down the hardest thing I ever had to do in my life. So you wow. make a roadshow, you get your deck together. So seasoned fundraiser, now you're in a different arena. Well, and that is part of what inspired me to start helping other people learn to raise money. Yeah. Is I said, you know what, wait a minute. I went to Yale, I raised $20 million in philanthropic funds. I actually sure. like fundraising, yeah. and this is incredibly hard for me. And I also stumbled on this statistic while I was fundraising that only 4% of venture capital goes to women-run businesses. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I Tell, got through that's the... That's 96% right? that doesn't. That's brutal. Yeah, it was a little discouraging. That's, that's worse than most women-related statistics, which that's are a, already that's a But I got bad. another one for yeah. you. I got another one for you. So only 3% of all women entrepreneurs ever get to a million in revenues. Okay. Okay. So women are out <laughs> dive into the experience. Tell it. Tell it. Give, give me. Give sure. me an anecdote from the fund. Well, I'll tell you what made me DCs. decide to raise money because this is a moment. You know, I think a lot of people can relate to where I actually did get to a place with the company where I was so exhausted and kind of burned out after maybe three or four years that I considered even selling because Mm -hmm. I was just exhausted. And right around that time, my cousin, who was also an entrepreneur, sold his business for 400 million. Oof. Yeah, that hurt. So I was, you know, I was like, what was that business out of curiosity? That was a business that was an online business. He sold it to a media conglomerate. I won't go into the details, but, you know, everyone in my family was like, well, call him up. And I was like, well, I haven't talked to him in years. What am I going to do? Call him up, you know? Mm. So, but I did because I figured, hey, (laughs) if I'm thinking of selling my business, I might as well have like a huge piece of humble pie before I do it. (laughs) So he came over, was very gracious, came to my office and asked me a lot of you know, tough questions like, well, talk to me about the cost of goods and your margins and your distribution channels and kind of like peppering me with all these questions, not all of which I could answer. You know, my accountant wasn't in that day. I didn't know the answers to all his questions. But at the end of all that, he was like, you shouldn't consider selling this business. You've built an incredible platform here. Mm -hmm. Why don't you go out and raise venture capital and scale it up? Great. 
Easy. Go. No problem, right? Yeah. And I tell High you, five. when he said venture capital, I felt like a deer in headlights. I sort of froze. Like, not those guys. Please yeah. don't make me go talk to those guys. Like, yeah. the whole point of having my own business, right, was that I don't have to go into rooms of men in suits and, like, prove myself. Mm-hmm. Oh, so and, you had this mental model of VCs as just excruciating. Well, I had raised all these nonprofit dollars, and mm. guess who some of it came from, right? Yeah. So yeah. I'd had some experience with, you know, private equity guys, VCs, and, you know, a lot of them are great guys, but there's certainly a stereotype that came from somewhere, right? Yeah. Of like people are on their phones while you're talking to them, incredibly hard charging. I did not want to do it at all. And I also suspected I didn't know how to do it and that it was a whole different ball game. And there I was absolutely right. And so I spent the next nine months researching how the heck do you raise venture capital? Before you went out to a single VC? Oh, I did not go to a single meeting. Because once I saw that 4% <laughs> statistic, I was like, if I have to be in the 4%, I'm going to have to be twice as good. Oh my God. So you hold up for nine months preparing. I did. Before you went out. Yeah. Wow. So I talked to CEOs. I watched Shark Tank. I read every book. <laughs> I watched Shark Tank. <laughs> this is awesome now. It That's was like amazing. it was like Olympic training, basically. You know, David Rose videos, how to pitch to a VC. I, I'm going to guess your parents never said, how do we get Julia motivated? <laughs> I'm going to guess that phrase never really Why is she making a it. spreadsheet about all her favorite <laughs> yeah. stuff? Yeah. There's a path. But I also okay. love the level of preparation here because it's clear, like, you're, you're going... This is going to be a pain in the ass. This yeah. is like this is not yeah. set up. She wasn't for going. Me. She's not going this into lose. Yeah, this is not anything I've ever <laughs> done before. And and I was right. It was just as hard as everyone said and everyone you know warned me. I'll tell you, every guy friend I went out with and said, "Hey, tell me what it was like raising venture capital." Almost all of them started with, "Do you want to see my war wounds?" Yeah, like literally, yeah. like like they had been to battle. Yeah. Right. It's a classic. No, Rich so, has done it. I've done yeah. a little bit with you. Like you, yeah. he, we've done the rounds, and yeah. it's, it's it's ridiculous. Hard. You can't have a fragile ego, right? No. You, you got to just keep putting it out there. So in any case, I did ultimately raise $2.1 million for my company, which was amazing, excruciating and wonderful and uh, found some really great partners. But when I got through the eye of that needle and looked back, I said, wow, that was so much harder than it needed to be. Mm. And how can I help make that easier for the women coming behind me? And so that's when I started teaching this boot camp on weekends in my conference room to help women learn how to raise angel and venture capital. And that evolved into the book, Million Dollar Women, because I just kept hearing the same stories over and over again of the challenges we were all facing. Were you seeing particular challenges because you were a woman in the process? Look, it's hard for everyone to raise venture capital, let's be clear, right? But then there are added layers for women that are specific to us. And so I would say 85% of what I teach in my boot camps and in my book, Million Dollar Women, applies to anyone trying to raise money, right? That was really my next question, is it? The challenges are, a lot of them are universal, but they're particular. But that 15% is yeah. what I couldn't find at the time. Yeah. And I was really craving hearing from another woman. Sure. Well, how did you do this? Well, how did you navigate that? You know? There's the support and the story and the sort of model to say, hey, look, this is achievable. Here are the challenges and here, here's the way to get And get here's a bit it. of a roadmap. Also, sure. Lean In came out right around then, you know, mm-hmm. Sheryl Sandberg's yeah, book. Yeah. And when I read that, I said, okay, well, that's kind of a roadmap to the corner office if you're mm-hmm. working in a big corporation. But where's our roadmap? You know, right. for women entrepreneurs, how do we get to sure. be multi-million dollar CEOs? And right. why are so few of us getting there? Right. So I really wrote Million Dollar Women to give women kind of a GPS to Got growing it. big multi-million dollar companies. I interviewed women across the country who've built multi-million dollar businesses from scratch yep. and said, you know, how'd you do that? Right. What I love here too is that you had this money to focus on your company and it sounds like things are going well, okay? 
But at the same time, you're like, ah, you know, I used to be a fundraiser and doing this company on the side. I should write a book now that I've got this <laughs> this whole company funded. So that's intense. That's wild. Multitasker. Multitasker. Yeah. I mean, is that actually, is that a common element with all of these women? Is that, you're not. Yeah, I think women are pretty good at multitasking generally. I mean, you know, if you look at a mom, it just becomes so obvious. It's like unbelievable what women are able to do with like a baby on one hip. Sure. (laughs) What sort of community has arisen around the book? Like it seems you're talking about doing events in the conference room. And so it sounds like people are really coming towards you now that you've written this. Yeah, that's where we started was in my conference room. Then we wound up partnering with Morgan Stanley and started teaching the... Nice young company. Exactly. (laughs) You know, but they've been huge supporters. They've been amazing. And then A.B. Bernstein also jumped on. That's a big private wealth management firm. And so now we we hold these workshops much more frequently. We have women learning how to raise angel and venture capital. I've helped about 75 women raise a total of $15 million for their companies. Mm-hmm. So proud of them. They're incredible. And then there's a whole movement that's risen up around Million Dollar Women. If you look at hashtag Million Dollar Women on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere, there are women actually all over the world who are really inspired by this notion of building big, successful businesses. Can I ask you a tricky question? Yes. How does this align with the traditional, like you were a strong, were and are a strong feminist focused on social justice documentaries. Yes. And now we are deep into capitalism. Oh, I am so glad you asked. Because, you know, when I started teaching those boot camps, it was really this. It was me thinking, you know what? I am not going to solve world hunger. I'm Mm -hmm. not even going to solve the homelessness problem in New York, right? Right. (laughs) But here's a place where I can move the needle. I'm one of these crazy people who likes fundraising. There are huge economic injustice issues with big, big gender divide, right? And you read about it every day, right? In Forbes and Inc. and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Women have less access to capital. We're not growing big multi-million dollar businesses. And this is a place I thought I could help move the needle. So this is a continuation of your activism. Yes. That's, I think, what's interesting. Well, I, don't, I think that the world's aligned. I yeah. think you can be a little bit of each. I think we're yeah. trying to do some of that. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I thought we were going to go into the thriving capitalism, just sort of crushing other competitors phase of Julia's life. I can do instead, that, too. <laughs> <laughs> you I have no there? doubt. I have no doubt. But it, it is interesting how the recurring theme throughout is there. Well, there's nothing more gratifying than helping to fix a problem that you've experienced. And I think that's something so many entrepreneurs can relate to, right? So many entrepreneurs are solving problems they experience themselves. So I think for me, helping other women have access to capital so that they can take their businesses to the next level or just access to the right networks, the right skill set, the right mindset. You know, what was interesting when I interviewed these million-dollar women across the country, women who built multi-million-dollar businesses, we all agreed that it's not rocket science. You really just need three things to go big. You need the right mindset, the right skill set, and the right network. And basically, everything you need falls under one of those buckets. Yeah. So I think for a lot, of, and that's for men too, by the way, right? But yeah. for a lot of people, there's all this mystery around, you know, how could I possibly build a big successful business? Sure. And limiting beliefs and reasons they think they can't. And so we're trying to just really simplify that with the million yeah. dollar and women And demystify movement. it. That's right. right. Demystify fundraising, demystify yeah. what it takes to go yeah. big, and yeah. just help a lot more women get there. It's awesome. We need to wrap up, but let's first of all, let's remind everyone that the book is called Million Dollar Women, The Essential Guide for Female Entrepreneurs Who Want to Go Big. It's from Simon & Schuster. We've been listening to Julia Pimsler. What if someone wants to get in touch with you? What do they do? So at juliapimsler.com, which is J-U-L-I-A-P-I-M-S-L-E-U-R.com, we have a lot of free resources. I have a blog 
called Million Dollar Monday. Every other week, I have tips about scaling up your business. Cool. There are free fundraising resources. There's all kinds of information for people who want to, you know, scale up their businesses, men and women. I have a lot of men who come to my site, and they are totally welcome. Are you still teaching on a regular basis? Yes. So I teach an online business school called Million Dollar Women Masterclass, and it's to help women scale up their businesses more quickly. And if I am interested in Little Pim, what do I do? Littlepim.com. We have a wonderful new CEO. She's rocking it. I am uh, <laughs> still founder, chair of the board, but love seeing her take Little Pim into the next iteration. How did it work out with the VC overall? Like, how you, When did your funding come in? Funding came in probably about four years ago, and the VC is on the board. She's fantastic. I uh, have a great relationship with our VC, and for me, it had a very happy ending. So you're on the plan. It's working. So far, so good. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming you in. You guys are awesome. Thanks for having it's me nice in. To hear. Julia, thank you. One of the most well-rounded human beings I've ever met. I, not really a human as much as a platform for idea distribution. I'm very impressed. I can make you guys a spreadsheet if you're jealous. I'm a little oh. jealous. Oh, I, would, I need to go back to the office and get it together. I know. Is what I need to I do know. now. I'm a, well, Whew. this isn't about me. Thank I, you, Julia. It was, was great, great being with you guys. Thanks, Thanks so much. again. Have a great day. Thanks. Well, Rich. Um, that was awesome. I have a lot to learn. I'm going to go check out Julia's website. Yeah. This has been Track Changes, the official podcast of Postlight. We are a product design studio in New York City. I'm Paul Ford. Rich Ciotti. If you need anything at all in the world, you just send an email to contact at postlight. Anything in the world. Anything. Contact at postlight.com. We love our listeners. We like when you rate us well. We like when you send us frank and honest feedback to contact at postlight.com. We'll be back really soon with another podcast, probably in a seven-day period. We'll talk to you soon. Rich, let's get back to the office and get entrepreneurin. Let's do it. Bye.